And as soon as they're gone, babe's like, where did they go? And Meg's like, oh, her kids ate paint, the little idiots, or what, you know, whatever <laughs> the line specifically is there. Everyone, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the podcast. Another conversation about a great script. And in this case, the last conversation of season eight. It's true. Yep, yep. We are coming to the end of season eight here. Such a great season. It's been great to talk about all the plays with all you all. Don't worry. We're already starting work on the next season. It'll be coming out sometime in the next couple months. We'll let you know when it's coming. But this is the last one of the season. So buckle up and and whatever. Like get get ready for it. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, you've already started the podcast. So I guess it's like. Take some deep breaths or something. I, right, I don't know. Right. Really, just a, a, a note in. that next Monday or or next episode or next Monday, there will not be an episode released. We'll take our short break between seasons. And like Jackson said, we'll let you know when the next season will be coming at you. Yes, indeed. But today, uh, we're still having a conversation, and today we're jumping into a, a great script, um, a well-lauded script, probably oh. one that you all have either seen or been a part of out there. We're talking about Crimes of the Heart today by Beth Henley. Crimes of the Heart is, it's the kind of script that really can only be described as an American classic. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of play. It's not going to have the same level of like ubiquity that something like Death of a Salesman has, but it is that kind of script in terms of its power in American theater history. Beth Henley is a spectacular playwright with a huge library of plays. And she, we were just talking about this before we started recording. She uh, and Wendy Wasserstein and Tina Howe and Paula Vogel. These are some of the the women playwrights that really defined that late 20th century uh, kind of view of, of American theater. Yeah, yeah, these these sorts of plays, great, great roles, great scripts, great settings, all all the like, yeah, no, I'm super excited to get to talk about it and and to kind of get into some of the sort of like deep character studies and 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 uh, and 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 like, the theme of tension between family and and love between family is is it's going to be a really great conversation. I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, well, it's it's like this this script is very much in that tradition of like the troubled American family, right. like your August Osage counties, yeah, your glass yep. menageries, your all my sons, right? Where right. it's just like the legacy of the hurting American family on stage. I mean, literally, there are books and books and books written about how the family is like the nucleus of American theater more than other theatrical traditions. Yeah. And and this play is like perfect example of that and how it shaped what's going to be happening on stage still today, you know, some 40 years after the script came out. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it also kind of riffs on the theme a little bit. We're getting ahead of ourselves oh, yeah. just a tad. But like, this is like the kind of, if, if, if a nuclear family is a rotating body, this nuclear family has stopped rotating around something. <laughs> and, and they're like trying well, to find- You just created a lovely metaphor for this script. Somebody needs to write that down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I'm excited to get into it. It's going to be a great talk. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Uh, before we get there, we will give our last Patreon pitch of the season. This podcast is a great joy for us. We love to do it. We love to talk about scripts. We've been doing it for eight seasons now, you know, nigh on more than four years. We've been talking about scripts weekly for the majority of the weeks of the year, and it's awesome. We love to do it. We get to read so many awesome scripts. We get to have so many great conversations. We get to have special guests we get to have themed months we get to have unique pairings of plays in conversation with each other it's it's great but it's not free for us to do and the truth is the podcast could not have existed as long as it has without the folks that support us on patreon we're not looking to get rich off of making the podcast we're not looking to turn it into a career we're just looking for help in in supporting the work that we're doing over here because we don't we don't have the financial basis by which to support a, the running of a weekly podcast on our own so the folks on patreon make that happen they give, they they sign up for a tier on patreon.com slash no script podcast. And that tier corresponds to a monthly amount that's just, you know, automatically given on your behalf uh, to no script the podcast. The lowest tier is a dollar a month. We've got a spectacular group of dollar a month patrons, and we've got a spectacular group of patrons at higher tiers than that based on what you can afford. We really believe that if you're a regular listener of no script, that you are getting that dollar a month worth of value. And so we'd really encourage you to think about joining at least at that level because the cost of running the podcast just exceeds what would be possible for Jackson and I if not for the support that we receive over there. Of course, there are benefits to joining on Patreon, which you can see when you sign up over there, including that you've known for a while that the end of the season was coming and that this script was going to be talked about at the end of the season. The, the foreknowledge of what's going to happen on the podcast is one of the benefits as well as other stuff, which you can check out over there. Hope that you'll do that. If you're a supporter already, huge thank you. At the end of the season, it's a great point to say that thank you because we've come to the end of another chapter that only exists because of those supporters. So thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet, please, please, please think about it. You can help make this podcast possible uh, for the future. Yes, thank you all ever so much for becoming patrons of the show. It means a lot to us. Thanks for interacting with the community, and we will see you over at patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Speaking of the NoScript community, this is sort of a tangent, but it's just fun to say on the podcast, boy, we've had a couple of really interesting conversations yeah. on social media lately about actually episodes from the past. I mean, that's what's so great about this the way this podcast works, because we just talk about one play every week. People will discover, you know, quote unquote, old episodes because they're college or they're community theater or they're professional actors or whatever, and they're doing a specific show. And so they'll go back and listen to an episode about that particular player. They went to see a play, and so they're going to listen to that episode. So because the the podcast episodes don't really, like, 
they're they're not really a specific like time period relevancy. They're more about the content of the script. We get to have these conversations about plays we talked about in season two or right. whatever, just sort of as if they're happening in the now on yeah. social media. So that's been a, a cool privilege as well. So that's just a, a tangent encouragement. Check out the social media pages. Comment what you think about the episodes. Your interpretation is probably going to be different than ours. Your sense of the characters. So we love to have those conversations with listeners too. So check that out. Yeah, definitely. And it's always fun to like brush up on scripts that I haven't read in like two or three years to, to have the conversation again. So it's super fun to like, yeah, if you haven't checked it out yet, it's really great conversations that we're having over on the socials. So find those. We'll say them at the end of the show if you don't know them or they're in the links in the description. Absolutely. All right. Back to the script. Here we go. Uh, we're going to jump in. I'm just going to give you a short introduction to Beth Henley. We've already talked a little bit about her place in the uh, in theater history in 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 the late uh, 20th century theater. There's whole books written about Beth Henley. So I'm just going to give you kind of the short version of of some of her uh, context. Um, so she uh, grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and she was one of four sisters, which is kind of important to think about for our conversation specifically today, because Crimes of the Heart is a play about three sisters in Mississippi. Um, so so uh, she's, she's kind of riding with authority there. Uh, she went to college at Southern Methodist University, and then pretty much right out of college, like the year after she started teaching playwright at the University of Illinois, before moving out to Los Angeles in 1976 and begin work on her play, Crimes of the Heart. Um, she is a, a, a prolific playwright, as Jacob has already mentioned. She's had a number of film adaptions uh, done of her plays that she has authored, including Crimes of the Heart, which received a film adaption, I believe, in 1986, and then also the Miss Firecracker Contest, excuse me, the Miss Firecracker Contest, which also received a film adaptation. Um, and, and she's received awards for her playwriting. She's received a, 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 a Tony Award nomination. She's received Academy Award nominations. This play won the Pulitzer Prize, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. And a number of, of other awards, including the New York Drama's Critics Circle Award for Best American Play. And uh, it was nominated for the Tony Award. So, so a well-lauded playwright, a playwright who is in the echelon of, of late 20th century women playwrights of, of theater. Um, and, and her plays continue to be done, especially for, um, their kind of focus on the sort of, uh, kind of, um, theme of the, the sort of Gothic South, um, is a, is a prevalent theme in a lot of her plays, but also the, 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 the prominent role of, of women characters in her play and the great roles that she writes for women characters in her plays. So, that's just a little bit about Beth Henley. To jump into the conversation of Crimes of the Heart, this play was uh, produced for the first time in 1979 in uh, in Louisville, actually, the Actors Theater of Louisville. And actually kind of a fun story that I found about it um, was that a, a friend of Henley's actually submitted it to the Actors Theater of Louisville. So it was kind of a, a, a um, yeah, a, a little bit of, of a surprise <laughs> to, to Henley at first that it was there. But uh, that production uh, went on to receive a, uh, uh, an award there. Uh, it was a co-winner of the contest. And then it had a number of productions uh, and leading eventually to the Manhattan Theater Club's uh, production in 1980. And then the Broadway cast, uh, the, most of that cast moved on to the Broadway uh, production in 1989 as well. As I mentioned already, the play uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, was nominated for a number of other 
of other awards, including the uh, Tony Award for Best Play. Um, and then uh, Henley uh, did the adaptation of the play into the film in 1986. And that film starred a number of, of significant uh, actors, uh, Jessica Lange, Diane Keaton, and Sissy Spacek as, uh, as the kind of three sisters of, of the family. So, and that, uh, that production, or I'm sorry, that film also won the Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. So, so an awesome play, a play that has been, uh, ha had its rounds, certainly, throughout uh, uh, theater history. Uh, it had an off-Broadway revival in 2001. Um, it had a London cast in 1983, and then a, the I already mentioned the film cast, um, and and it continues to be produced in uh, in colleges, in educational theater, in community theater because it is such. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons why. There's not just one reasons why, reason why. It has great characters, has a great set, one room set, um, uh, has great action, great drama, and I'm excited to get to kind of jump into some of the finer details of it in our conversation. Yeah, J Jackson and I were joking before we started recording that you could you could basically pull any theater in the country out of a hat: university theater, community theater, professional theater, uh, really high level professional theater. Yeah. And just pull it out of a hat, and the question becomes not whether they've done Crimes of the Heart, but what's the most recent production of Crimes <laughs> of the Heart done at that particular theater? And this play has that kind of life uh, out there. Your local university for sure has done it probably somewhat recently. I mean, it depends on how you define recently, but right. it hadn't been that long probably since they've done a production of Crimes of the Heart. It's that kind of play. Okay, so Crimes of the Heart, Jackson has said, takes place in a small town in Mississippi. The time period listed becomes sort of significant, and actually I'm interested in discussing why she defines the time this way. Uh, it's described as five years after Hurricane Camille. So that hurricane, 1969, it struck Louisiana and Mississippi, basically, uh, so five years later. So this is the mid-70s, basically. Mid-70s, small town Mississippi. Action revolves around the three McGrath sisters. These are three uh, women in their late 20s or in Lenny's case, very early 30s, because in fact, the beginning of the play is on her 30th birthday. Play takes place over 48 hours, the day of Lenny's birthday and the following day in this small town in Mississippi. Boy, trouble is a brewing <laughs> for the McGrath family. <laughs> so basically, the, the, the kind of story of the plot, there's lots of little subplots that I'll try to summarize as much as I can. But the basic through line story of the plot is that the youngest of the three McGrath sisters, Babe, is her name. She has been arrested, in fact, is in jail at the start of the play, just about to make bail, for shooting her husband, Zachary, who is a state senator. And so time of crisis, sort of similar to August Osage County, right? Time of crisis, the adult children come back to the home place. And in coming back to the home place, the tension of now sort of who they are now and who they are uh, in context of this community sort of boils over. So the, the people that come back, Lenny lives in this town. Babe also lives in this town. But Meg comes back from California. 
where she is, she sort of claims to the community that she's working as a professional singer. We learn, of course, that that's not actually what she's doing. She's basically just doing clerical work for a dog food company. Uh, but, but so she has this, oh, singing career in California. Not really. Uh, and so she comes back to town to what, what the heck is going on? Babe shot her husband. She's been arrested. Is she going to go to jail for the rest of her life? Right. All of this is a question. And throughout the play, uh, what's going to happen to babe sort of starts to get revealed. They hire a young sort of whip crack lawyer who is, uh, named, um, uh, Barnett. And he has this personal vendetta against Zachary, the state senator who was shot. And he and Babe sort of work out what's going to happen. The story goes that Babe was uh, having an affair. Uh, and Zachary, it's a little unclear when he discovered the affair was going on. But he certainly came by at some point while this gentleman was there. Uh, and things got violent and eventually Babe shot him. It's also revealed that Zachary is an abusive spouse beyond the fact that Babe was having an affair. That becomes part of the the court case as well um so that that gets sort of resolved not not necessarily resolved but the the what's going to happen in terms of whether babe's going to jail uh what, what's going to happen with her relationship with zachary all this stuff is sort of negotiated throughout the play other than that it's sort of a lot of little subplots that come into conversation with each other one of them is that lenny is turning 30 and she feels very alone she basically lives in this house to take care of their grandfather who is very ill and before the action of the play had to be moved out of the house and into the hospital which leaves Lenny sort of uh, rudderless uh, the, the, the thing that she was rotating around that she had sort of built her adult life at this point around taking care of this grandfather now he's in the hospital he's probably going to die in the near future what's going to become of Lenny she also is uh, has not had any real romantic prospects in her life in terms of partnership and companionship she joined a Lonely Hearts Club before the action of the play and was in this relationship with this guy, but decided to break it off. Um, what's going to happen with that is an open question. Meg, as she comes back to town, is reunited with an old flame herself, Doc. They were fairly seriously in a relationship, but apparently on the night of Hurricane Camille five years earlier, she abandoned him after he suffered a fairly grievous leg injury due to the hurricane, and that's when she abandoned him to go to California. So she's coming back with all of this sort of weight carried herself. Doc is a character in the play. He and Meg in sort of the very middle of the play go off to spend an evening together. Um, uh, and I will say an overnight evening together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although it, it, my, my sense of what is described is that they, they don't actually end up sleeping together and that this sort of uh, evening that she spent with Doc changes Meg's sense of being able to care for someone uh, quite a bit. They also, uh, the three McGrath sisters also have a cousin, Chick, who is really embedded in these small town social circles and politics. It's very concerned about how the odd McGrath siblings all three of them with these sort of issues <laughs> uh, is reflecting on her and her social status. But the really sort of major thing that hangs over these three women's lives and which is not it's not resolved. This is the sort of thing that can't get resolved, but it is it is it is it is uh, it is evolved their understanding of it and their understanding of how it affects them their relationship with each other was resolved which is that um w when they were i think teenagers their mother hung herself 
Um, and so this is maybe a good point to say we're going to be discussing suicide and attempted suicide, at least in some part during this conversation. Uh, so if this is a headphones conversation or a, I need to turn this off and not listen to this conversation, probably a good time to do that. Um, so because of this thing that happened to them, and actually Meg was the one to discover it, and it has impacted her heavily throughout her life, also in sort of a grotesque comic image that they have to deal with uh, now as adults, the mother not only hung herself, but also their cat. And that is like, it's been a question, and it still is a question uh, all these years later. What in the world did she do that for? And so each of these women carry with them into their late 20s, early 30s, the sense of our mother had a mental illness. How is that passed down to us? What happened there? Uh, how, how is that legacy going to impact us today? Um, is the culture that we live in related in some part to this depression or whatever that our mother was dealing with? Or are we dealing with that now because of this same culture? So it's one of those, like, before the action of the play, something happened, and the characters now have to, to negotiate it, to, to, to deal with it it to somehow move forward with it in context of the present moment of the play. So those 48 hours are Lenny's birthday, which everybody forgets. Um, that becomes sort of a subplot that becomes a really nice image through the play. In fact, the play opens with her lighting a birthday candle for herself alone in, in the kitchen. Yeah, in like a <laughs> cookie. It, I know, in a cookie, yeah. <laughs> and it closes with the next day, the sisters realizing their mistake, try to have a really nice birthday celebration. They get her a really gorgeous cake. They put candles in it. And the play ends with the three sisters sort of establishing a more powerful bond than perhaps was previously there. And so you get this contrasting image, really great writing of Lenny alone in the kitchen with her own birthday candle herself in the very first moment of the play. And in the very last moment of the play, she's in the kitchen with her sisters. They're enjoying this birthday cake together. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Imagery is such a, a, a big deal in this play. Excited to get into it. I, I want to like, I want to just real quick, cause I think it'll be a somewhat quick part of our conversation, but I do want to uh, hearken us back to what you said right at the beginning of your synopsis about the uh, kind of dating of the play or the setting it in a time. Uh, uh, Henley, as, as you said, uh, dates the time in the fall, five years after hurricane Camille. Um, and I had to look that up. Hurricane Camille is the second largest hurricane to ever make landfall in the United States. Big deal. Um, a huge Category 5 hurricane that hit right into Mississippi. Um, so, uh, so, but yeah, what, what is the kind of significance of it being dated in that fashion? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because it's it's only something for the reader or the production team. Uh, I think it's very... I, I suppose some theaters do this. I, I don't know that this makes a ton of sense to me, honestly, but some theaters will put that kind of detail in their programs, like a description of the characters and setting as it's listed in the author's notes. Uh, so I suppose in that context, maybe the audience would see it. But in general, this is for the reader or more likely for the production team to understand something about the play because you should have she could have just said I don't, not should have in fact I'm about to explain why I think it was really cool not should have she could have said 1974 right I mean <laughs> or the mid 70s right, or, or right, whatever yeah. But she describes it as five years after this major disaster for this region of America and the 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 description being 
after a disaster, right? If I were to make it much more general, that five years after Hurricane Camille could also be five years after a disaster. And that, I think, is is why that works so well and why, for me, it's so striking. Uh, but so much better than the present. Uh, <laughs> to continue <laughs> my tirade against the present <laughs> in setting notes. No, but this is, this is basically her saying, uh, after a disaster. And this play happening after a disaster rings through for so much of it, right? After a disaster in the sense of after their mother's suicide. After a disaster in the sense of after Babe shot her husband. After a disaster in the sense of after Meg, we learn uh, sort of in the middle of the play, spent many of the past couple of years in a mental institution. After a disaster in the sense that in the very first scene of the play, we learn that Lenny's horse has tragically died the night before after being (laughs) struck by lightning. Oh my goodness, yeah. (laughs) So after a disaster, what's going to happen to these three sisters? That could sort of be a description for the whole play. It's true. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. That, and and I, I agree that that's like a great way to kind of like set the tone almost <laughs> for it. It's also a great way to give the, the play some uh, kind of um, anachronistic staying power um, because you're not saying a specific date. You are giving the date like you, you have the back reference, right? You go to Camille, you say five years after that. OK, you have the date. Um, but but also you, you, you don't have to stick to that. Really, the only thing that um, that makes this play stuck uh, kind of placed in the time that it's placed in is that reference and a reference of a telegraph as a means of communication partway through the play. Um, so so that kind of opens the door to allow the play to have this sort of evergreenness about it. And there's there's probably some other things in there too. Um, but but it allows the open door to like kind of uh, allow this to be about whatever, you know, whatever uh, kind of current disaster is hitting these players' lives or whatever uh, disaster is, is a part of um, the cultural vernacular if you wanted to do the play in a, in a kind of revamped way. It's also interesting because it, this is like probably uh, less than halfway through the play. I think it's shortly after the act break, perhaps. Anyway, there's this moment where I think a similar categorizing of time happens and it is when babe is putting together or she she's adding something to her like life photo album or scrapbook or something to that effect right and so what she's adding is she is clipping out the front page news article about her shooting her husband yeah. <laughs> and she's going to add it to this scrapbook. And and one of the sisters offhand, I think it's Lenny, but le- it doesn't really matter, says, why do you put bad things in there as well as good things? Because as Babe goes through the photo album for us, there's all kinds of hard things that are in that scrapbook, including, of course, the clip out of their mother's suicide. There's a picture of their father who left them many, many long years ago. So she, her scrapbook is a collection of like the highlights of your life as a scrapbook, you know, kind of typically is or a photo album, but also a collection of the bad things, right? And so what Babe says is, I, she says something to the effect of, I want to keep a an accurate record. And so I think that's a similar marking of time, right? And maybe maybe it's Beth Henley slipping in a little bit of 
uh, uh, I don't know if it's just, ob- it's probably just observation rather than commentary about how we mark time, right? It, we mark time sometimes off of the highlights, right? I'll say my wife and I have been married for this amount of years. There's a great highlight in my life, or that was a year after we moved to Montana or whatever, right? Great things. But also off of the bad things, right? Oh, that was the year my dog died. Oh, oh, that that was the year that uh, uh, such and such a friend had this terrible thing to happen to them. That was the year the fire burned down a block of downtown, right? So we do mark things off of these sort of pivotal moments in our life, both good and bad. So five years after the hurricane would be a way to mark a moment in your life. Yeah, yeah, and and these characters have had plenty <laughs> of those moments Ooh, to yeah. to mark their lives with, and and over a pretty short amount of time. Like it was interesting to uh, read the character descriptions. There's some great character descriptions in in the in in this play, and they're all they're all 24 to 30 years old. But the way these like these descriptions are are uh, kind of presented have such like weight to them uh, especially uh the the kind of description of of like how their eyes look um like like Meg for instance walks in and I'm just going to paraphrase it cuz I don't remember the page number but it's something like she has um like really excited but also like deeply sad um, sadness I, I in her eyes. I think Bethany says she has magic eyes. <laughs> That's what it is. Magic <laughs> eyes, but deeply, or there's, there's also sadness in there I too. I don't know about that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, but yeah, just like, so you kind of see the stories of these comparatively young characters. Um, maybe, maybe it's just cause I'm 30 and I'm like, these guys are comparatively I, young. I actually but. totally felt the same thing. <laughs> Some of it might be like, this is a play 40 years later. Some of it might be like about the cultural expectations for uh, women in, you know, the 70s. This is only a little bit after the 50s where, you know, so some of it might be that. But I too felt like these three sisters are talking about themselves like they're turning 50 or something. Right, you know, like right, right, right. The better part of their young, uh, you know, young life is, is winding down. It's like they're 24 to 30. Yeah. Like, <laughs> As someone who falls in that age range, I just don't quite identify with their sense of like how old they are. But again, it's a different culture for a lot different of different culture. Reasons. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 but they they have this these sort of big big moments in their lives that they all and and kind of the last of the big moments. I think if I'm if I'm tracking the the uh, timeline right, is uh, Meg moving. Um, so this is kind of the first one of the first times that Meg has returned and the family has been back together again um, because uh, you you have you have the knowledge that uh, uh, that uh, Babe got married when she was 18. So that was like uh, math is math is a thing. Six years ago. There we go. <laughs> Six years ago. And we know that the hurricane was five years ago. So so this this is likely the first time Meg has returned to this family unit. Um, and, and, and kind of a little bit of the stranger comes to town of like, here's all the things that happened while you were away. Yeah, no, that, I think that's absolutely true. And noting that the, the marker of the hurricane is also a marker of like, I guess you could call it when the family, uh, splits in the sense of Meg moving to California. That's a really good point too. And so much of this play is about sort of the, the the difference perhaps between 
true sort of familial relationships and the other kinds of relationships you have in your life. In fact, scholars, Jackson mentioned that there are books written about Beth Henley, of which I have a few. And some scholars have talked about, like in Beth Henley's body of literature, you actually often see this sort of comparison of family love, like uh, like the family you grew up with or even the family that you chose, that kind of family love versus romantic love. Yeah, which is kind of on, like you, you see that definitely in this play. You see the the difference uh, of the sort of uh, attraction and, and uh, um, connection that um, uh, Meg and Doc Porter have with each other uh, in, in pretty stark relief to the sort of uh, kind of committed love of this, fa- like the sort of f- maybe forced commitment, but a committed love of these sisters, right? Like the 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 uh, commitment to continuing to uh, lean, like lean into the tension of some things. Like Lenny, over and over in this play, kind of has to, especially in the second act, I believe, has these uh, moments where she finally airs some of her grievances. Um, so that, that it sounds like Babe has probably heard a bunch, but Meg probably hasn't heard a bunch. And so over and over, uh, it's brought, some things are brought up, like things from childhood, like Meg always got more bells on her dress than we did. Somehow grandma pampered her more than us. Um, or, or the sort of disrespect of like, like Meg, uh, takes out tiny bites of every one of the chocolates that, that, that Lenny, uh, got for her birthday. So, so it's, it's, it's these, these kind of like frustrations, even as they are all kind of rallying around each other and supporting each other in this moment of disaster. Yeah, I, I actually, it's, it seems to me that it's the relationship between Meg and Lenny, which is like in most need of repair in this, this trio of sisters. But, and that may just be as a matter of practicality because Babe has this other thing <laughs> that right. is Significant horrifying thing. and happening to her. Uh, and, and then she's the only one who is married. And so some of it might be a matter of practicality, like how much can one character endure over the course of the play? She's got enough going on. But it's also interesting structurally because we know from the previous action of the play that Meg moves away, right? So Lenny and Babe have spent the past five years together living in this small town. Now, Babe is married. She's not living with Lenny in the house, but that relationship is ongoing, right? And and we know that Meg moving away to California doesn't really answer uh, phone calls, uh, letters, anything like that from back home. So that relationship has had somewhat of a break or a gap in it. And when Meg comes back, it's interesting that Babe seems to serve as the sort of intermediary between the two sisters. She's the one who kind of communicates one thing to the other. She's the sounding board as Lenny and Meg, when the other is off stage, sort of work out their their conflicts with each other. And so the way that that works out structurally is that because Babe and Lenny have been living together in this town all five years, in order for Babe to serve that role for Meg, Beth Henley has to figure out a way to kind of build that relationship up very quickly. And so I actually find is an interesting feature of the play that Babe and Meg get quite a bit of stage time together compared to the other characters. I mean, they have fairly extended scenes where intimate revelation moments come out and it's with those two sisters. And I think part of that is Beth Henley trying to sort of work out the relationship so that the 
hope that Meg and Lenny as this sort of opposite sides of the trio, you can use Babe as an intermediary, which sort of pays off in the end. Yeah, yeah, the sort of go-between of of Babe is like able to listen to both, but also to tell stories about both. Um, is is an interesting sort of way that like a lot of this play has this sort of um, teeing things up sort of uh, movement in it. Like you get little tidbits of information for later on a character to kind of knock it out of the park. <laughs> and one of the big ones of those is uh, Babe confiding in Meg that Lenny has in fact had a relationship a couple years ago um, with this person called Charlie and that somehow they broke up after um, Charlie met their grandfather. And uh, Babe doesn't really know why necessarily, um, uh, but but has some guesses. And uh, it has to do with, with uh, their relationship and the likelihood uh, Lenny knows that she has a, a lower likelihood of being able to have a child. Um, so uh, Babe has a guess that that was a part of the equation. And so part of the like fun reversal then happens is when that that uh, that gets that the, the ball that was teed up gets hit later on in the act when Meg <laughs> says that she has this information to Lenny and Babe is kind of like drawn in as having told uh, Meg about it uh, against Lenny's wishes to keep it secret. Um and and so you you have the sort of revelation moment of of that information once it finally kind of uh, comes around and is used in their relationship. And actually, I love that that piece of information as a way to sort of as a metaphor almost for tracking the relationship because it, so it's a great example because it's something that Babe knows already about Lenny because they've lived with each other not necessarily in the same house, but in the same town for these five years while Meg has been gone, right? So it's something that Babe already knows because of her previous relationship with Lenny before the action of the play. When we get into the play, Babe and Meg have to have a private scene on stage together for Babe to be able to communicate that information to Meg. Then what happens next is that it's used as a tactic in context of an argument between Meg and Lenny. So Meg uses this thing that Babe has shared with her as a as a sort of weapon against Lenny to embarrass her basically or or whatever you know actor verb lingo you want to use in that sense but then by the time the play comes around to the end it's used as a bond between the sisters as both babe and meg are able to encourage Lenny to take that leap of faith and call this guy back uh, in this sort of nice sister family encouragement moment. So it really follows the way that the relationships work out across the play just to track that one bit of information. Yeah, yeah. So so there's the, there's that that one's kind of like journey through the play. And then there's also the 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 information, the slowly revealing information that we get about what happened with Babe at the start of the play. Um, because we, we know she's in prison. We know we know pretty quickly that someone was shot. And then we then it's just it's just a great kind of domino of like little bit of extra information that we get. We know she's in prison. We know someone was shot. Then we know that Babe, in fact, shot with the person. <laughs> then we kind of figure out, oh, this person, they were married. That's where it's her. It's her husband, Zachary. Um, she comes home. Uh, babe, like slowly reveals more and more information. But there's a stop point where she says, I'm protecting someone. I can't tell anyone about it. So that's sort of like that, that, that continues throughout the rest of the, the play as we slowly learn more and more about the events of earlier that day or the day before or whatever about her shooting her husband. 
Yeah, well, I, I think there's a lot of little reveals like that. It's part of what makes Beth Henley such a great writer is she understands how to control information. Let me give you like a much smaller, more compact example. So there's this picture at the beginning of the play, right, with Lenny and this solo birthday cookie. Well, what happens is Lenny comes in by herself and she pulls out a cookie and she puts a candle in it. So she's celebrating a birthday. Whose birthday is she celebrating? She lights the candle. Could be, so we hear somebody start to come in, right? Oh, maybe it's the surprise for this person that Lenny's celebrating their birthday. How cool. But then Lenny quick blows the candle out and hides the cookie. Oh, okay. So this is something she doesn't want this person to know. Okay, then in the conversation with Chick, it's revealed, Lenny, it's your birthday. And now in retrospect, we have an understanding of the image, the very sad image of her blowing out her own candle by herself on stage that we saw at the beginning of the play. And then the image comes back in its fuller context. After Chick leaves, Lenny actually gets the candles out again and lights and blows it out and lights and blows it out, making a couple of different birthday wishes. So it's a very strict control control of what information is learned when in order to create the best impact for the stories it rolls along yeah when when, when eventually it, it kind of comes around and, and kind of sucker punches you essentially <laughs> so th- there's two there's two other features i just want to I, I think are really interesting to talk about one of them is like the I, I, so I'm going to use the word naturalism, and I'm not pulling this out of my own head. Um, uh, this is something that scholars have talked about, too, that there's right. There's sort of two views of naturalism. One of them is the sort of like humans are so impacted by their environment as to be uh, as to be their sort of their destinies and their choices are fully impacted by the environment that they grew up in. And that theme is certainly explored by Beth Henley in this play. That'd be interesting to talk about. But then there's also like theatrical naturalism, right? The sort of real life as it really is, you know, to the best of your ability to mimic real life on stage. So what are we talking about there? Well, we're talking about there are real birthday candles that need real fire that are lit and not lit throughout the play. There are real pecans that come into the stage and really need to be cracked and eaten throughout the course of the scene. There's lemonade made fresh on stage requiring lemons and sugar and water and knives and chopping and mixing and all of that kind of stuff there's a real bowl of oatmeal that needs to be eaten by babe on stage the uh stage directions for this play and other beth henley plays are really clear that there should you know the kitchen should look dirty and lived in it's not this sort of gorgeous uh kept piece of theater art that should look like just like someone's real kitchen except it might be a little larger Right, right. Yeah, no, the gas stove features pretty prominently. There's whiskey, there's cigarettes, there's lots of practical um, props in this play. Um, and, and some of it comes down to negotiation. I already, already mentioned a little bit about the chocolates and the kind of disrespect around the, 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 the prop negotiation there. But also some of it, uh, like, there's, there's just lots to play with. Also, there's the kind of um, uh, juxtaposition uh, given what is required on stage because there's a cot on stage, a cot um, that uh, that Babe is using um, in the kitchen. Um, and, and the way that it's interacted with in that space offers some juxtaposition. There's also a scene right away at the beginning where uh, their cousin Chick is in there and Chick is like, 
changing her uh, stockings in the kitchen. Um, and and that, that's that's like intentionally, even in the stage directions mentioned is like, this should feel weird. This should feel juxtaposed for what is happening in the kitchen. So there's kind of that like, I, w- I wonder if the sort of naturalism of the kitchen is is kind of providing the backdrop for a lot of these things that yes, we have these sorts of conversations in kitchens all the time, but also the the, the kind of backdrop and relief of how odd some of this stuff is to happen inside inside of a family's kitchen no i totally agree with that and and the stockings are a great example of the uh the sort of thing that runs through the play are these like grotesque i would say or even like odd uncomfortable black moments of humor dark comedy this play is often called a tragic comedy has been used to describe this play right so you have this strange moment where she's changing her stockings in the middle of the kitchen you've got this early on that everyone everybody asks babe why she shot her husband she just says i don't like his looks or i didn't like his looks right there's this uh the kid the kid chicks kids off stage eat paint at some point and they right. run off and in, in to, to, to worry about it right and as soon as they're gone babe's like where did they go and meg's like oh her kids ate paint the little idiots or what you know whatever <laughs> the line specifically is there uh it, you know there's the moment where the lawyer comes in and he lists off these all these impressive credentials and meg is fairly unimpressed and then he's like and i hate zachary i have a personal right. vendetta against him she's like now that's what i'm talking about that is what is impressive uh there's the, the the moment at the beginning, I think, of, uh, of Act 2, where Babe is sitting and, and spilling it all to the lawyer. And she'll say things like, uh, so I, you know, I went into the kitchen to get a drink. And he's like, your palpable and undeniable thirst in the face of this violence led you into the kitchen to get a drink. You've got the, the, the best example of the dark humor, of course, is when Meg comes back after spending this evening with Doc. And she's like, I'm going to go tell Granddaddy the truth about my career, even if it puts him in a coma. And of course, he was in a coma the night before Lenny and Babe had to run off to take care of that and so the sisters fall apart laughing at this juxtaposition of of Granddaddy being in a coma with Meg saying she was going to tell him the truth even if it put him in the coma they laugh and laugh and laugh about it so you have all these moments of shocking almost uncomfortable humor and that comedy comes to sort of define the play even as it's it's a it's kind of a sad story yeah, yeah, no, it it definitely is. There's 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 the I kind of said at the beginning, uh, the 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 whatever the family rotated around has completely shattered, and they're all kind of spinning around trying to find something to ground themselves in. And it is a sad story as all of that slowly starts to come to light, even as the kind of richness and the beauty of them finding each other. Um, slowly uh, materializes as as the kind of la- lasting image at the end. Wishes is an important theme in the play, and the kind of final image of 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 uh, Lenny finally getting her birthday wish over a proper cake with proper candles, and uh, Babe kind of uh, uh, frequently throughout the play weighs in on the efficacy of wishes, and uh, she kind of names this one as one of the most <laughs> efficacious moments to make a wish, and the wish that Lenny shares 
news is that you know it's just them uh, together laughing and and smiling and and in a somewhat for for how naturalistic this play often is in a somewhat surreal moment we get a tableau at the end of almost exactly the image Lenny describes of these three sisters um, around the cake eating eating uh, large slices of this of this uh, uh, rich dark chocolate cake together laughing and smiling together. Yeah, and it's it's not like the plot, uh, the the story part. How do I want to say this? It's not like the the actions that have been so painful for these three sisters and that they're actively struggling with have have really resolved. Uh, Meg's career is still a huge question mark. They have a plan on what they're going to do about the court case, but they, they, we don't really know what's going to end up happening with this. Lenny did call the guy back, but who knows what's going to happen with that. They drove Chick, their cousin, out of the house, and she's kind of their social buffer in this crazy small town that they live in. So who, all of that stuff remains unresolved, but the final that final picture, I think she calls it like a magical moment, is these three sisters this picture of of like sisterly unity of familial love and happiness and joy in the midst of all that and of course that being the end of the play that helps you to understand as a reader and even as an audience member what this play has been about all along right that these things that are happening externally to the sisters are really just pieces of life that Beth Henley is using to tell a story about the sister's relationship itself. Yeah, yeah. The 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 way that Lenny describes her wish and the wish for their relationship, I think is really uh uh, really pertains to what you're talking about, about the sort of unknownness about where this relationship is going to go. Lenny says, uh, um, well, well, babe, Lenny says that she's had a vision uh, and her wish was more of a vision than a concrete wish. And uh, babe asks a vision. Uh, what was it of? Lenny says, I don't know exactly. It was something about the three of us smiling and laughing together. Babe says, well, when was it? Was it far away or near? Lenny says, I'm not sure, but it wasn't forever. It wasn't for every minute. Just this one moment, and we were all laughing. And I think that kind of speaks into that um, uh, ephemeral uh, a couple a couple moments of family connection and joy that are that are not always that are not uh, that aren't even most of the time necessarily, but still provide those those kind of glowing moments of connection of beauty, even as they have lots of questions about what their future is going to look like. Yeah, early in the play, that Meg is talking to Babe about what happened. And she's trying to convince Babe to spill the beans on what really happened with her and Zachary. And she says this quote. She says, it's a human need to talk about our lives. It's an important human need. And although, of course, Meg's using that in context of this trying to persuade Babe to do this, I do think that it, it becomes a sort of way to understand the play, this human need to share our, our real lives with someone. And in this sort of sm small town, although this would happen in a big city too, in this sort of small community, let's say, where everybody knows everything about everyone, it becomes very difficult for all three of these sisters to... Uh, 
to have that moment, those people with which they can share their real lives because so much of it spills out and becomes weapons against them in the community. I think that's one of the reasons why Meg takes off. I think she says that she felt stifled, right? And and so Meg coming back and then being able to share sort of the real vulnerable part of herself, Lenny being able to share the real vulnerable part of herself about this relationship that she almost had, about her taking care of granddaddy, about her relationship with their cousin Chick, Babe finally being able to admit the abuse that she suffered at the hands of her husband, right? The, the ability to share this real intimate part of yourself, I think that is one of the things the sisters find in each other that, that becomes so powerful for them. Well, and you see that um, all, all throughout as they slowly realize that they can only turn inward to trust people. I like that you mentioned because each of the relationships on the outside are disappointing in some way or not fully, um, f- fully trusting in some way. And so the, the need to turn in helps Lenny uh, move on towards uh, towards this call, calling this 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 person that she wants to spend more time with. It helps Meg as she kind of deals with the um, uh, kind of wandering around her feelings for Doc Porter and the reality of her career not really working out. And it goes with Babe too as she confesses certainly the um the the trauma of living with her abusive husband and also manages to confess her own kind of de- depression and scaredness fear of going into an asylum as a result of her of, of Zachary threatening to throw her into asylum that leads her to a moment towards the end of the play of of trying to take her own life couple times um that she that she tries in a couple different ways but meg comes in and catches her and she's able in that moment to share with meg at least to a degree what she's going through that today it's a, it's a line that's repeated um that today is just a really really bad day yeah well and, and that's like i think that's part of the grotesque that dark humor too right that yeah she tries to hang herself upstairs and it doesn't work so she comes downstairs with like the noose hanging around her neck and like right. slams the phone down because it's ringing then she tries to do the thing with the oven and she hits her head and meg comes in and catches her and, and helps her up why did you do that why did you do that i don't know it's just been a really bad day right so that i mean that kind of edge to the humor is part of what tells the stories in those moments and each of these sisters in the context of this small community that they live in are these sort of outsider characters for one reason or another and 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 another interesting feature is that they're all like dealing with institutions to some degree too, right? Meg has come from a stay in a psychiatric hospital. Uh, Babe is is facing the risk of time in prison or her own stints in a psychiatric hospital if her husband's threat gets his way. And Lenny, maybe not so obviously, but what's going on with Granddaddy, the person that she's taken care of his whole life? He's in the hospital, and she has to go to be with him a number of times throughout the play. And so there is this sense of like, um, the community and the vulnerability that is accessible outside of these institutions and the risk of this sort of isolation that institutions like that can impose. 
there there's just so many more facets to this script um in in the backstories in the side stories in in the various characters who he kind of just kind of skimmed across <laughs> um but the sisters are kind of the the kind of glowing center of this play and so we spend a lot of time talking about that fortunately we don't have to stop talking about this play there's plenty more to dig into and we'd love to be able to do that with all of you out there in podcast land um you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter at the username at no script podcast we also have a gmail no podcast at gmail.com this is very likely a play that you've seen been in read seen done somewhere seen the movie maybe and we'd love to keep talking about it with all of you out there absolutely if you like this conversation or any of the other conversations in season eight which is coming to a close at this very moment please send folks on over to uh patreon or not not patreon to podbean where we're hosted send them to patreon too look but if they want to find the episodes podbean google play apple podcasts or spotify you could also like us on facebook a link to the new episode appears every monday but not next monday or for the next couple at least Mondays as we take our regular between season break and thank you once more to our patrons as is our our tradition we like to say the patrons who have uh, subscribed at the playwright level we give them producer credit on, on, on the episodes and so thank you to Michelle Miller, Abby McCubbin Albert Dayen, Brennan Sauer, David Lindsay Abair, Joanna Lawler, Kyle and Lisa Tenholzen and Roger Hartley for uh, being the, the kind of at the playwright tier over on patreon.com. Thank you all so much for being uh, of, of uh, help to the podcast and the, the no script community. And until next season, until where we're talking next season. Wow. Yeah, just, wow. <laughs> until then, when we're talking about a whole bunch of other of uh, theater's best scripts, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.